The funny thing about news today is, well, we cover everything that's funny and not so funny about news today in this conversation with Rafer Weigel. What if the truth came in a gel cap and we could just pop it in our mouths and forget about it? Well, it doesn't, and we can't. But we can laugh in the face of reality while plotting our survival. Welcome to the Truth Tastes Funny Podcast. I am your host, Hirsch Repun. And if my guests can handle the truth, so can you. Open wide, folks. Here it comes. My guest today is Rafer Weigel. He's a three-time Emmy Award-winning journalist. He's worked with such blue-chip companies as CNN, Fox News, ABC News, CBS News, Los Angeles Times, Chicago Sun-Times, and now he's with us. Today he is with us here on the Truth Tastes Funny podcast. He is working with clients in the profit and nonprofit sector to tell their stories. And Rafer, welcome to the show. Hirsch, thanks a lot for having me on, my friend. I'm grateful to be here. I like Sam, a recovering journalist. And you know, when I was in news, I was getting 20 press releases a day. And my TV station, we had two reporters to cover the entire region of Chicago. That is, and I'm being glib and I'm not meant to be glib, but it's basically a shooting on the south side and snow on the north side. Because local news, if it doesn't bleed, it doesn't lead. And God forbid there's a weather event. That's just, that's what they cover. So not only was there no interest in covering a lot of these feel-good stories, especially in the nonprofit space, you know, there'd be a lot of great things going on in the nonprofit space, you know, feel-good stories and and we would never touch it. And I saw and I and I looked at this and went, my God, PR is a waste of money. If you're spending five to 10 grand a month in hopes that the media is going to cover your story. I looked at that and thought that's just money going into the abyss. So I only knew news and journalism. I didn't know anything at all about being an entrepreneur. And so we created what I like to call like a news for hire company. But what I quickly found out, it was called videography. <laughs> a lot of video production companies, yeah. out there, you know. And they were already doing this, right? It wasn't anything that I, you know, invented by any means. But what we had to come up with in terms of our differentiator was that we really wanted it to be story driven. I'm finding that's a tough sell to a lot of regards. You and I talked about this offline and I want to get your input yes. on it. But, you know, we are award winning storytellers. Are, and how does that translate, though, to ROI? At the end of the day, that's what people care about. If I'm going to spend the money, why do I going to spend the money with you? And I found that our watch rates are three times higher than the YouTube average. And that was the ROI. But for the most part, and I don't know how you feel about this, people don't tend to buy creative. They want to buy eyeballs. And okay, so you did a great story and you told it amazing and it's on our website. So what? So I've had to really learn how to communicate the value of that. And now I, I in order to me to, to stay relevant and keep working, I had to bring in partners to bring in those eyeballs, social media managers, YouTube ads specialists and so on and so forth, because that's what people are focusing on. But my belief, Hirsch, it's like if you're paying for eyeballs, you've got to invest in good content. I mean, if you're if you're paying a social media manager, but you're not investing in putting out something that's going to engage people, don't be surprised when you only get five likes. It, you, I, I just firmly believe you have to have a content first strategy, but that doesn't seem to be the norm in the marketing world, at least from my experience. I don't know if you've had a similar experience. It may go back to what you started with, which was that people aren't interested, you were saying, in feel-good stories, or the networks, rather, aren't interested in leading with feel-good stories. What I would think is 
that if the news is as stressful as it is, and the news is as disturbing as it is, one would think that stories of hope, stories of inspiration, stories about successes and human interest would be desirable. And yet, as badly as we need it for our souls, we're not drawn yeah. to it. We'd rather watch a fight. We'd rather watch right. something scary and something a little bit, you know, what's doing, what's been doing well for the last few years, apart from the Marvel universe, horror. Horror's been phenomenally successful as a genre. Yeah. And you would think that we couldn't deal with any more horror. We get enough fucking horror on the, just turning on the news. So yeah. there's something in our psychology that's drawing us to controversy and to shock. And when you point to the need for a great content strategy, what I guess we're both trying to figure out is what makes an eyeball magnet strategy for content? Right. You and I both, we have in common this, I was never a journalist, but I have felt quite often like a journalist for the brands that I work with. I'm researching them. I'm telling their story. I'm interviewing them. I'm not telling them what to say. I'm not feeding right. them a line of bullshit that they're supposed to come. I'm trying to make them shine. And as you do filmically, you're not a videographer. You're a storyteller. Your medium is video or film or the visual storytelling. But, you know, you're not getting up on a ladder and shooting the chuppah from <laughs> the wedding video. You know what I mean? Right. Like that's what right. people think of when they think of a right. videographer. I always say anybody can shoot a video, not anybody can tell a story. And there is a key differentiator there. Right. You know, stories are what create that organic, authentic connection. The other thing that is key though, in the art of good storytelling, and this is something you know, your wife who's a doc, former documentary filmmaker knows, and this is a thing that all journalists know. And this is a thing that people need to pay for because otherwise you're wasting your money. And Donald Miller in the book, Building a Story Brand, really encapsulated this perfectly. At the end of the day, the stories that sell are not the stories that position the company as the hero of their own story. I tell my clients, you're not the hero of your own story. Your customers are. You are an integral part of that story. You are the guide in the story. You are the Obi-Wan Kenobi, the Yoda. That, but the customer is Luke Skywalker, and you're the one teaching them how to defeat Darth Vader. And when I would get these press releases, and I get it, you know, when you're a PR company and your job is to, you know, you're getting paid by this company, you want them to, you know, read it and feel good about it. But all the press releases were like, you know, Company A is so great, Company A is awesome, and Company A is this, and boom, boom, boom. And then, like, in paragraph four, it was like, oh, and they found a cure for cancer. I mean, you know, I'm being obviously over the top, but, you know, the, that's the lead. You know, cancer suffer, patients suffering relief in sight thanks to breakthrough technology. Don't even tell me the company's name right off the top. Tell me the problem that's being solved and then backdoor in the company that's doing it. That is what's going to grab eyeballs because at the end of the day, the audience has got to know what is in this for me. And so that's just my little two cents there on the art of storytelling. Make sure that you're doing something that's going to, you know, engage people and serve, you know, their interests rather than your company or your clients. You hit the nail on the head with the problem solving aspect. Go back in time a little bit and tell us how you first got interested in 
journalism to begin with and storytelling. Well, it's an interesting story and it's a cautionary tale, you know, for your client or your clients, your audience. Uh, so my father was an iconic sportscaster in Chicago, almost on a like a Harry Carey type level. Uh, he was the original Ron Burgundy. He wore a burgundy jacket. He had a mustache. And Bill Curtis was his news anchor when he was the sports anchor in 1990-91 when Will Ferrell was actually studying at Second City. So I'm 100% convinced that my father in some way inspired the movie Anchorman. When he passed away in 2020, or in 2001, I should say, he, before he passed away, he said, I expect you to, to carry on the family tradition. And the one thing he always wanted to be was a news anchor. He was never able to, to transcend to that level except for one week. This is an interesting story. They put him on the anchor desk for one week in the early 80s with Oprah Winfrey. True story. After one week, the news director said, guys, this was a horrible experiment. Oprah, you look terribly uncomfortable reporting on death, murder, and pain. I'm going to give you your own show to report on, and I quote, women's stuff. This was in the 80s. And Timmy, as <laughs> right, my father was right. called, he said, you actually started giggling when you had to read a breaking news story on the serial murderer John Wayne Gacy when you said his last name. You clown, you're going back to sports. So I did go on this Oedipus <laughs> Rex-like quest, in true story, uh, to become a news anchor. And I come from this macho background that to ask for help is a sign of weakness. I grew up on the North Shore where we are taught as men, as long as your career is in place, nothing else matters. Nothing could be further from the truth. I ended up in Market 3 as a news anchor. It took me 15 years to get there. My marriage fell apart. My ex-wife moved to Vegas with my son. I became estranged from him. The woman I fell in love with post-divorce, I left behind in St. Louis. And I sunk into a deep, dark depression. And I self-destructed. And I lost my job. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because I went on a quest to realize that mental health and personal success that's way more important than professional. If you're not in alignment spiritually, whatever you want to call it, psychologically, then the professional stuff is not going to be sustainable. And I was really an ego-driven pursuit. Trying to be a news anchor was about serving my ego, and that's not a sustainable model either. And so now having that, that, that moment of humility and losing that job and having the rug pulled out from underneath me like that, I realigned, and now I'm serving others, and I'm telling other people's stories. And, you know, like this, this is the only sport coat that I own, Hirsch. I got rid of all my stuff. I don't need to be on camera anymore. <laughs> I like telling other people's stories and making them be the star of, of their show. That's the, and, and, and it's just it's much more filling and much more gratifying for me. So I wasn't happy reporting on on death, murder and pain and fear and tragedy without getting into solutions. But we can talk about this. Is another thing you mentioned you want to talk about, you know, the news media now it's gotten away from reporting on facts that reports more on opinions where we where I grew up in was the media wasn't about reporting opinions, but it was about looking at solutions. And now I don't see them doing that anymore at all. I feel that they're they're reporting on news that's just meant to depress or they're inserting their opinion and their agenda because their ego is attached to the result. And I honestly don't really watch it anymore. Uh, I'm sad to say I've, I've kind of tuned out of obviously the major events you're never going to turn it tune out the highland park event has affected us very deeply up here where i live right near there but for the most part it, it hasn't become a venue that i frequented very often are there places that you can go to get unbiased straight reporting now i don't know Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I used to think NPR was that way, but I've read a lot of articles from them, even the Associated Press. You know, you have to you really have to read two or three versions now of every story to get to the truth, I, I think. And 
print, I, I came from print. I started in newspapers and before going to TV. And with TV, you only have a minute and 20 seconds. It's really only three paragraphs, maybe, maybe not even that, the equivalent of like one or two paragraphs of a print article. So you really can't get that deep into the story like you can with print. But I found I'll read the same story from three different sources and there's a different take on it every single time. Now it's, you know, look, we're human. We're going to report through our own prism. It's just whether that prism is, is in any way inserting an agenda. I don't see a lot of checks and balances to the same degree as I used to. What we definitely see are agendas at work, right? Where organizations are putting what they know to be disinformation out, which is yeah. different from misinformation, from a mistake or, or a different point of view, a, a left-leaning or right-leaning or a centrist viewpoint. It's different. It's actually designed to confuse and mislead people. Right. And we're confronting that too. So there are people who say, well, now more than ever, we need journalists a free press. We need journalists who can go after the story and get us the truth, almost like like bounty hunters. They're like going out to get the truth because it's so hard for us to get ourselves, you know? Yeah. I'll give you an example. So I was the reporter that broke the story that uh, Chicago police did not believe Jesse Smollett's story that he was assaulted by two white supremacists in Streeterville in 20 degrees below zero weather at two o'clock in the morning carrying rope and bleach, which right. every, sing every single Chicago resident who heard that story went, yeah, it's a bunch of bullshit. That did not happen. But I, I, I about after I did my newscast one night, I called my source at Chicago PD and the guy had, he was happy to be working on the case, had just come back from the bar. So he was a little more lubed up. And I called him up and I'm like, yo, Rocco, that was actually his name. I'm like, what's the deal with this Smollett thing? And he goes, Oh, yeah, it's a bunch of bullshit. I'm like, okay. I said, what, what makes you say that? He goes, are you fucking kidding me? Some black guy getting beat up by a couple of white supremacists in the middle of Chicago? If that really happened, would they be calling me to save the, the white guy's asses for getting their asses kicked? And I said, can I, can I quote you on the record on this? And he said, no, no, no. Just say we're skeptical, but we're taking it seriously. So uh, they, we all talk like Chuck Swirsky and the superfans here in Chicago. Yeah, that was the really good... That was a really good voice that you, that you did. Yeah. <laughs> so he said, but so he wouldn't let you quote him, but he was more or less on the record as saying that they're skeptical. We're skeptical. We, and so that was the word that I used. We're skeptical. And, and when I tweeted that out, and this was the same night that Kamala Harris and Pelosi and Biden and everybody, you know, these hate crimes need to stop here in America and all that. And, you know, and I'm apolitical, so let me just make that very clear. But I did watch how both sides, like the left, took this and ran with this as truth. And I tweeted out, police aren't believing this. And then I woke up the next morning to thousands of hate tweets, like from people just attacking me and, and this and that. And I didn't say that, Jesse, I said, Chicago police tell me they are skeptical that he actually was, in fact, beat up. And my own news organization asked me, you know, and Rocco kept feeding me information. So I kept tweeting it out like, hey, call me up a week later. Hey, you're never going to believe this. The guy was carrying his Subway sandwich back to the hotel or back to his apartment after he was supposedly beat up. I'm like, can I go on the record? Oh, yeah, go on the record. He had the sandwich and he had the fucking rope around his neck. I'm like, all right, I'll take the fucking out. We did that <laughs> out again, more and more stuff. So the point of me telling the story. So my news organization got very nervous about it because the backlash was pretty intense. 
And all I said was, look, I'm just quoting my sources. I'm not editorializing. This is what they're telling me. When the police finally did charge him with staging a hate crime, I became this darling of the right-wing media. I was on Sean Hannity. I was on Glenn Beck. I was on WABC Radio as like this this courageous truth teller. And I remember thinking, Laura Ingram had me, and I'm like, yeah, I'll go on. But I'm like, all I did was my job. I just reported what I was told by a very reliable source who was working on the case, how that somehow became A, polarizing, and B, something to be revered, to me was a terrible statement about the state of the media. Because the first rule you are taught in journalism school is if your mother says she loves you, double check it. That, I mean, that's what you don't trust what anybody tells you, and you certainly don't run with anything as truth. That seems to be a dwindling paradigm. That's so that's my that's my so, Jesse Smollett story. Well, what I'm interested in after hearing that is what was your adventure like in that world of the Laura Ingrams and the Sean Hannity's and what was that what was that like? Well, I mean, I'll tell you this, I don't I don't agree with their politics, but they were very nice to me on the air. Granted, I had I had I had reported news that that you know aligned with with their narrative. Sean Hannity butchered my name. He called me Raffer Wygel, and I corrected him <laughs> on the air. And he was very good natured about it. Um, but this is what I said to him, Hirsch. I said, "Look, all I did was report what I what, the truth. And by by the truth, I just said what police told me. That was the truth. It wasn't that he did it or he didn't do it. It was that this is what police said. That was the truth." I said, if police had told me that Jesse Smollett was, in fact, beat up by two white supremacists carrying rope and bleach at 2.30 in the morning in 20 degree below zero weather in Streeterville, honestly, that's a better story. I would have happily reported that because I would have gone, who are the two white supremacists walking around with rope and bleach right. at 2.30? You know, but that's not what I was told. I just reported what I was told. So I basically was like, you know, I appreciate you having me on here, but I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything that's worth noting whatsoever. I think... The fact that I was there was a larger statement on the political climate that we're in, that we want to politicize all these stories. We're doing it with the Highland Park shooter. We're politicizing that story. We're talking, you know, people on the right are saying he was Antifa. People on the left, oh, he's a Trump supporter. He may be, he may be not. At the end of the day, his political affiliation is irrelevant. If this man did this, he's a sick fuck. And who cares what political yeah. party's in? He, you know, he killed people with a fucking assault rifle. What do you mean? Who cares? I mean, so politicizing the news has become it's become such a weapon now and that concerns me i just because because i grew up in a time where we could have political debates with people we didn't agree with and we didn't get personal and we didn't argue with each other we'd still have a beer and drink and put our arm around each other and go you know you're an idiot right no you're an idiot but we were still friends i just don't see i didn't mean well to wax you remember uh, political on all this yeah no no that's fine remember when you used to be able to people used to go on opposing viewpoint shows for a an exhilarating invigorating discourse about the the stuff that they disagreed on and they were excited to do it but they knew there would be respect and also that their words wouldn't be taken out of context and put through a mill as grist to try to push their agenda at that whole machine, and back in the day, there were, you know, when Fox emerged as that machine, as a machine like that, 
they were still kind of a rarity. You know, there was a point mm -hmm. at which, what's his name? Bill O'Reilly was doing, you know, the, the before the O'Reilly factor, when he was doing hard copy or whatever the show yeah, or that, entertainment that he was tonight on. Or one of those things. Yeah, right. He was like a he soft He was news doing guy. something. He was a tabloid guy. Right. But he was a tabloid guy. He wasn't considered a journalist. It was entertainment then. And then what's happened now is that what was entertainment then is news now. And what was news then doesn't exist. They used to have Sean Hannity and Combs. It was Hannity and Combs. They eventually just got rid of Combs because they didn't want, you know, it, it was like, now we just want to hear the one, you know, the one side. People want to get their right. ideas reinforced. I was taught that it was, you, you were supposed to challenge your ideas and your notions from diversity of thought. You know, we talk a lot about diversity, equity, inclusion, but there's very little of it on the idea front in terms of being able to exchange ideas from other people. And I think that goes for all sides, right and left. I'm not saying that any one side is more guilty of it than the other, but you're right. And those, those discourse shows, I mean, that's what we, God, I remember we used to get into like debates in college and talk about stuff at the bar and, and it was fine. You didn't, you know, you didn't get upset if the guy supported Ronald Reagan or Michael Dukakis. I mean, you know, dating myself, that's how long ago I was in college, but, but you're yeah. right, Hirsch. It's, you know, yeah. we sound like two old guys right now, back in my day, but it's true. Yeah. Back in my, well, I didn't care. I didn't, when I was younger and in college and stuff, I wasn't politically active. I didn't really, I absorbed certain things, but I really cared about movies and TV and comedy and the lighter side of stuff. I didn't really get into that. It certainly was not tuned into activism or any of that stuff. It's only in the last decade where I don't think it's because I'm old. I think it's because I see the freedoms that I grew up taking for granted now at risk for my kids and their kids, let's say. So I see us on kind of a really dangerous precipice, which maybe that does happen to everybody once they get into their 40s and 50s. Everything just looks dangerous. I don't know. Maybe I'm just making a big deal out of nothing and we're fine and everything's fine and the whole world's fine. The The earth will take care of itself. Everybody's going to be fine. I don't know. But I do know that I got started to get worried yeah. about democracy and worried about reporting and worried about journalism. I was never interested in journalism because it didn't need me. You know, the field of journalism didn't need a guy like me, a, a comedian. So what would I have to do with it, really? Well, now you you'd know? have a great journalism um, show because you'd be funny. I mean, The Daily Show, um, man, when that first came out was like, that was brilliant. Like that was like, you know, that was how so yeah. many people in my generation got our news because we were entertained and informed. I mean, I don't know how much we were informed, but it was, you know, like that was a really good model, you know, and again, being apolitical here, you know, we're both pretty socially liberal guys. I remember when the right, like the, they tried to make a conservative version of the daily show and it lasted for about seven seconds. Yeah. And it was like, I basically walked away with them. Like liberals are just funny. <laughs> so, you know, there are a few funny conservatives, well, Dennis Miller's, uh, Tim Allen, but yeah, but for the most part, yeah, the liberals seem to have the comedy cornered. Yeah, Tim Allen's a good example because he's not what you would call a conservative comedian. He's a comedian who's a conservative. Right. And right. having heard him on a interview with Mark Maron on the WTF podcast, 
I found him to be a generally very, very gracious and reasonable and generous spirited human being. So his political beliefs is back to that old guy thing. You know, he's old school that way. He respects you if you respect him. He may have a different opinion. Nice stuff that we don't get to have anymore. But I think, (laughs) you know, and because it's my show, I can have my opinion. And my opinion is that conservative politics aren't funny. And the reason they're not funny goes back to what you were saying, Rafer, in your description of what makes a good press release. The client, let's say, isn't the hero, right? Mm -hmm. There's another hero. There's somebody who's doing something great, and that's the audience, or that's the, yeah, the audience identifying with the story. They're the one whose problem's getting solved. They're the one who's getting the benefit of something, of somebody else, and the client is that somebody else who's doing a good thing for them. And in conservative politics, it's kind of like, well, if you aren't me, go fuck yourself. So (laughs) on the conservative side, it's like, you know, Unless you're serving my interest, I you really don't exist. And then you could be my father or my grandfather, like when COVID started and, you know, the Republicans were like, ah, they live long enough. Fuck them. You know, <laughs> they had a good life. The father's like, dude, my, I can't breathe. And they're like, fuck you. Get off here. Did you sign all your papers? Are the papers all signed? You know, that's and it's hilarious. just, you're, but you're that's why that. that, huh? Yeah. I was going to say you're wrong for that, but that's hysterical. Well, I will agree with you to a point. <laughs> Unfortunately, the left is caught up with regards to the cancel culture. You know, Bill Maher goes on yeah. uh, about this a lot. And, and, you know, I mean, comedy, you're a comedian. You, you know, comedy used to be very inappropriate. And now you can't say stuff anymore without pissing off oh, the yeah. cancel culture on the left. And, and God forbid you said something back in 20, 30 years ago they will cancel you now. That is one thing I disagree with about, you know, and Mars said it, he's like, who are you that you're so effing perfect that you never once made a mistake? So there's there's become this righteousness now to me on any fringe, um, you know, politically, you know, Dave Chappelle, you know, he's, his number one critics are coming from the left and the LGBTQ community. And I'm not saying that what Dave Chappelle says is okay. I'm certainly not saying that. And I'm not saying that, you know, they shouldn't be offended by the things that he says, but the intolerance in terms of just in your room. I mean, have you seen that in comedy now? Like you're a comedian. Like, have you seen that where it's almost like what you basically I feel like if if you're a comedian now, all you can do is tell dad jokes. I do agree with that. I do. Because, Rafer, what happened is the carefulness, fear, the whole point of being a stand up comedian is to unleash a fearlessness that's what we struggle with as comedians coming up trying to do a get your first few minutes together i one of my buddies once challenged me at an open mic he said for this three minutes that we get for this open mic don't do any material just be brave like do something scary do something that scares you and i did i i did two of these i did one where i talked about suicide Mm. And the only thing I, I, and I started telling the story and I was, I was like, did you ever notice, which just popped into my head. And I said, did you ever notice how lucky you get just when you're about to kill yourself? And it got a, a huge laugh because it was this huge release. And I told a, a story about it 
that wasn't real, that wasn't true, but it encapsulated a lot of things that we all go through about depression. So that was one that never would have come out if I hadn't been brave. And another one was just talking about ass, just the concept of of an ass or the ass okay. for three minutes, which is scary because it could very well not be funny. And so the risk of not being funny was what I had challenged myself to accept. So, you know, we can you draw were, our own you, parallels between suicide and ass, but... Right. <laughs> but it worked out is what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, I was... Well, it worked out because no one was going to judge any of right. it at that right. moment. You know, this is maybe 10 years ago, right? But no right. one was going to judge it the way that you get judged now on social media. And if you have a platform, now you're judged every time you say something. So that cancel culture, the only good way to use cancel culture would be if I could go back 30, look, 30 years ago, I said I do to my first wife. Go back and cancel that. We could cancel that with cancel culture, maybe. You could go back and 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 cancel mistakes you made. But, oh yeah. You know, but I agree with you. It's it's we're stymieing the same spirit of conversation we're talking about. And what is the intent? Right. Hatred hatred and fear have a smell to them. We know what that is. We And sometimes we get confused because we see it in print or type or on Twitter or in sound bites and not in context. And that's where the pervasiveness of, of social media creates a pitfall for anyone who's saying anything with any depth because right. they're at risk of offending people based on the context in which it's received and delivered, which they may or may not have any control over. And it's interesting because there are some comedians now that go so against the concept of political correctness, like Ricky Gervais, like comes to mind. I don't know if you saw his special, but he just went on yeah, and on. Yeah, about, I did. Yeah. And I mean, he's like offending women and all this stuff. Now, again, I'm not saying that that's OK. I, I, I'm not. But, you know, he decided he, I'm going to go out here on a limb and just offend whoever I want to offend. And so and it was funny because we can't do that anymore. Not, and I'm not again, I'm not saying it's it was a good thing that we were making fun of people, you know, sexist, racist humor. I, I'm not saying that in any way, shape or form. But I grew up in, a, in an area. Chicago is a very ethnically diverse area. Now, granted, it's also very segregated. But the way that I grew up in the 80s in Chicago in these, you know, around, you know, Polish, Jewish, African-American, not a lot of Latino, Asian, you know, we were raised as kids to embrace each other's differences and celebrate them through humor. That was the defense mechanism that we used. And we had a very diverse, ethnically diverse, you know, group of friends. It wasn't homogenous in any way, shape or form because we didn't find each other's differences in any way scary or alienating, but the way that we disarmed that was through humor. Now, you can argue that we've evolved since then, and now that's why we're having conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion. I'm a firm believer that diversity of thought makes an organization better because they're going to see things that I don't see. But at the end of the day, what we are talking about is like, I'll get off my soapbox here, is humility, right? I mean, you talk about that hatred coming from the right and the, and the Bill O'Reilly's and the Hannity's. There's no humility coming from those pundits. And by the same token, the cancel culture 
and saying that these people who made mistakes, I made mistakes. I made a mistake in a couple of years ago. I made bad decisions with women. That's I've learned from those mistakes. But, you know, people deserve second chances. And to not give them those second chances to satisfy your own ego is, again, lacking in humility. So that, to me, is more of a prevailing. I think if you have that humility where you recognize, look, I don't have all the answers and I'm not all that. I can only, you know, this is my world. Let me just contribute what I can. That to me seems, and that, and I certainly don't see a lot of humility on social media. So I don't know if there's something, some kind of connection there, or not. But you know, if you want to be a good storyteller, I'm going to tie it back into my profession. You have to have that humility because you got to realize, as a reporter, I'm not the story. As a videographer and a content creator, a content marketer, I'm not the story. It's up. It's them. That's the, it's they. It is they that that is the story. It is the customer. It is about other people. It is not about me. It is around every, about everybody else around me. So anyway, I didn't mean to go off on that soapbox tangent there. That's awesome. Rafer, it's very well said because the truth is that humility is the counterpoint to judgment. So mm-hmm. when you have someone on the street corner looking at somebody and going, oh, I don't like what they're doing. What they're doing isn't, isn't any good. They're sitting there judging that person down the street. Up the block is another person looking at that second person going, oh, well, I don't like what they're doing. I don't like what that person. So there's always someone judging. And the person judging is lacking humility. Because if you are humble, you will not put yourself above everyone else. You won't put yourself above the story. You won't put yourself above the truth. You won't put yourself above the feelings of the person down the street from you. So I think you nailed it. We need humility. A lot of people will say compassion. We definitely mm-hmm. need compassion. But compassion's subjective. Humility covers so many bases. You know, if, uh, if we can do a reset, I feel like we, as a human race, as a species, we need a reset. We need someone to come in. Now, maybe that's not going to, if that really were to happen, and that's, you know, like... God forbid, an Armageddon or a nuclear war or something. I don't know that I would be the beneficiary of that reset. But we need like a reset that doesn't hurt. You know, we need like a little reset. We wake up and instead of Groundhog Day, everybody's just a little bit like had a chill pill, had a little reset, a little tweak. I think it's like one of those things, like when you go to have something repaired in a watch shop or something. And it's for some reason, it's always a second behind. You don't know what the hell's wrong with it. And the watchmaker opens it up and they hit the, they go, oh, well, this was just this thing right there. And now your watch works perfectly. We just have that weird little thing that's off in all of us. We're all a little off. We're all, yeah. Well, and the other thing, we've all got a little AFib. And well, the only way to do that is to do it internally, right? I mean, and that's what I had to do. I, you know, I had to do a humility reset and I don't have all of the answers. But what I see is I definitely think everybody would agree with you. I think that a lot of people right now, though, are blaming the other side for the reason for the reset. You know, I need a reset because you're effing everything up. I need it because you're effing everything up. And that's like and I just want and look, if I'm in that that space and like, you know, I get shit wrong all the time and somebody gets mad at me. Instead of getting mad at them, I'm going to look at and go, all right, what could, what can I do differently to improve this relationship? And sometimes there is nothing you can do, and right? I mean, that's 
that's the catch. You know, that's the that's the danger. Is like if you you can go so humble that you can, <laughs> and you as a comedian might might understand. You can go into that self-loathing space. You don't want to do that either, right? You, you know, it's that as Nigel said in Spinal Tap, it's that fine line between clever and stupid. You want to be able to be accountable for what you did. But at the same time, have boundaries when you know, okay, this guy is just an asshole and doesn't like me and there's nothing else I can do. It had nothing to do with me, right? Like that's one of the, like I went down the humble route, lost the job, big time humility, humble, humble, humble. And then I had to then take a step back and realize, okay, you know, some of these things were outside of my control. Some of these things happen independently of decisions that I made. You know, I'm not talking back then, I'm talking currently. And that's not always an easy thing to do. Like you, you know, to have that confidence and that humble balance, that's a day by day thing. And I'm, I'm still trying to figure it out. So, you know, if you figured it out, let me know how you did it. I'm just going to keep talking to you because I think I figure a little bit out. Every time I talk to you, I figure a little more out. You drop these little nuggets like citing spinal tap. There, there's a very fine line between stupid and clever, which is really true because right. it's, it's razor thin. If we look to the fine line between stupid and clever, then we're actually being humble about our own intellect because we're like, well, one step to the right, I'm a fucking idiot. Right. You know, and that's in a, if, you know, I wish we were yeah. allowed to, they were allowed to curse in Congress. They could talk to each other more honestly, I feel. Goes back to that British, when you're watching like the British <laughs> parliament, Things, you know, I'll refer my colleague, the distinguished gentleman, to the answer I gave some moments ago. You know, it's like what you really want to do is come out and say, you fucking twat, you know, you imbecile. And if, they, <laughs> if you could say that if they could talk to each other like that, like like they like Mitch McConnell could say, say something and then they <laughs> and then they come back to him and go, fuck you. Fuck you, you, Mitch. Are you out of your routine. fucking mind. This is your next stand-up routine, Hirsch, totally. Like, it like could Congress, be. You know, the, the inner monologues of Congress, what they would really want to say to one another. Right. And those were, by the way, very good imitations. I think that would be a very good oh. uh, shtick. I think that'd be hilarious. Because right now, everybody I'll says develop what they it. want to say on social media, but they don't say it, you know, face-to-face. -face. Mike Tyson, I think, said it best. He's like, this guy's tweeting stuff that he'd never say to my face. You know, I used to, I used to watch yeah. what I said around people that I knew could kick my ass. You know, and that was like you developed a filter because you just you had to. And if you wanted to be an asshole, then you better well go get to the gym and get big enough to defend yourself. Otherwise, you know, I had to be nice out of safety. And now you can say whatever the hell you want on social media without any fear of repercussions. Well, before social media, I was a smart ass in high school and I didn't go to the gym, but I had a very, very tall best friend. That was my, that was the thing that I could always just run and hide behind him. And Mike, Mike, if you're out there listening, I need you to, I need you to show up again because this new set I'm going to develop is, uh, is going to piss some people off. Well, Rafer, thank you so much for coming on this show. And this was so much fun. And I hope you enjoy it. I hope we get to have more conversations together because we haven't solved all the problems. I know that. Right. Right. We only got we got as much as be more humble yet confident. Uh, and Congress needs to say what they think. Yeah. And then my favorite life, uh, you're a big fan of The Simpsons, I'm sure old Simpsons. But like my, sure. favorite, my Troy McClure, you remember that uh, character? 
And, yeah, uh, Troy McClure. And, and the, I'm Troy McClure. And my the favorite book, fake book title ever came from The Simpsons, which was Get Confidence, Stupid. And I often thought <laughs> that would be the name of my autobiography. Get Confidence, Stupid. <laughs> Awesome. So you have your marching orders too. You have. Are you working on an autobiography? No, I've been working on everybody else's story, but my own. And you know, I'm one of those guys. I'm like, ah, who can, you know. And then I go on a podcast like here with you, and I tell my story, and I'm like, I mean, that might be. You know, I haven't accomplished enough first for anybody to read and be like, yeah, I want to be like that guy. I, I not. I, I wouldn't. I, yeah. Again, it's the humility coming out here. Oh uh, well, there's too much humility. That's another that's another uh, spinal tap thing when they're at Elvis's grave and he says, uh, you know, really, really puts things in perspective, doesn't it? And he, Michael McKean says, yeah, too much fucking perspective. <laughs> so we have we have too much too much perspective. But I'll I'll maybe I'll write um, your autobiography. I'll write your autobiography right, well, for you, and it'll be I. You're very I, I am I am I am Rafer Weigel. An unauthorized autobiography by Hirsch Repoon, and we'll we'll do it together. We'll. I, well, I'm grateful for whatever partnership we come up with, my friend, and I'm grateful for meeting okay. you, the friendship, and for the time. Thank you. Thanks so much for tuning into Truth Tastes Funny. If you enjoyed the experience, please leave a five star review and share this podcast with your friends. <laughs>